This is Our American Stories, and on our show, we often like to ask writers to read what they've written. And by the way, not just big writers and famous writers and writers for the Washington Post or the big newspapers of this country or the big magazines, just ordinary folks who post something. It doesn't, well, you don't have to be a writer to be a writer. And this writer in particular was the international admissions director for Dartmouth College. It can be hard to know which students to admit to a place like Dartmouth. It's really competitive to get in. But one year there was a student that stood out above the rest. Here is Rebecca Sabke reading her article for us. Check this box if you're a good person. When I give college information sessions at high schools, I'm used to being swarmed by students. Usually, as soon as my lecture ends, they run up to me to hand me their resumes, fighting for my attention so that they could tell me about their internships or summer science programs. But last spring, after I spoke at a New Jersey public school, I ran into an entirely different kind of student. When the bell rang, I stuffed my leftover pamphlets into a bag and began to navigate the human tsunami that is a high school hallway at lunchtime. Just before I reached the parking lot, someone tapped me on the shoulder. Excuse me, ma'am, a student said, smiling through a set of braces. You dropped a granola bar on the floor of the cafeteria. I chased you down since I thought you'd want your snack. Before I could even thank him, he handed me the bar and dissolved into the sea of teenagers. Working in undergraduate admissions at Dartmouth College has introduced me to many talented young people. I used to be the director of international admissions and I'm now working part-time after having a baby. Every year, I'd read over 2,000 college applications from students all over the world. The applicants are always intellectually curious and talented. They climb mountains, had extracurricular clubs, and develop new technologies. They're the next generation's leaders. The problem is that in a deluge of promising candidates, many remarkable students become indistinguishable from one another, at least on paper. It is incredibly difficult to choose whom to admit. Yet, in the chaos of SAT scores, extracurriculars, and recommendations, one quality is always irresistible in a candidate. Kindness. It's a trait that would be hard to pinpoint on applications, even if colleges ask the right questions. Every so often, though, it can't help but shine through. The most surprising indication of kindness I've ever come across in my admissions career came from a student who went to a large public school in New England. He was clearly bright, as evidenced by his class rank and teacher's praise. He had a supportive recommendation from his college counselor and an impressive list of extracurricular. Even with these qualifications, he might not have stood out. But one letter of recommendation caught my eye. It was from a school custodian. Letters of recommendation are typically superfluous, written by people who the applicant thinks will impress a school. We regularly receive letters from former presidents, celebrities, trustee relatives, and Olympic athletes. But they generally fail to provide us with another angle on who the student is or could be as a member of our community. This letter was different. The custodian wrote that he was compelled to support the student's candidacy because of his thoughtfulness. This young man was the only person in the school who knew the names of every member of the janitorial staff. He turned off lights in empty rooms, consistently thanked the hallway monitor each morning, and tidied up after his peers, even if nobody was watching. This student, the custodian wrote, had a refreshing respect for every person at the school, regardless of position, popularity, or clout. Over 15 years and 30,000 applications in my admissions career, I had never seen a recommendation from a school custodian. It gave us a window onto a student's life in the moments when nothing counted. That student was admitted by unanimous vote of the admissions committee. There are so many talented applicants and precious few spots. We know how painful this must be for students. 
As someone who was rejected by the school where I ended up as a director of admissions, I know firsthand how devastating the words we regret to inform you can be. Until admissions committees figure out a way to effectively recognize the genuine but intangible personal qualities of applicants, we must rely on little things to make the difference. Sometimes an inappropriate email address is more telling than a personal essay. The way a student acts toward his parents on a campus tour can mean as much as a standardized test score. And, as I learned from that custodian, a sincere character evaluation from someone unexpected will mean more to us than any boilerplate recommendation from a former president or famous golfer. Next year, there might be a flood of custodian recommendations, thanks to this essay. But if it means students will start paying as much attention to the people who clean their classrooms as they do their principals and teachers, I'm happy to help start that trend. Colleges should foster the growth of individuals who show promise, not just in leadership and academics, but also in generosity of spirit. Since becoming a mom, I've also been looking at applications differently. I can't help anticipating my son's own dive into the college admissions frenzy 17 years from now. Whether or not he even decides to go to college when the time is right, I want him to resemble a person thoughtful enough to return a granola bar and gracious enough to respect every member in his community. And thank you, Rebecca, for sharing that. And my goodness, I would have let the student in too. And by the way, we're going to be covering a story uh, that came out of the New York Times recently, and it had to do with Harvard. This is one of the first years that they've decided to not let people in because of Facebook posts. So as you're talking to your kids, know that they're now looking at Facebook posts, how you conduct yourself, what you say, stupid stuff you do, lewd stuff, inappropriate stuff you do, and thank goodness, I wish, I wish we'd all get on this. It's a big problem in the country. And uh, good for Harvard uh, for doing that. And thank you again uh, for sharing that story with us, Rebecca Sapke uh, at Dartmouth College. And we also love to hear from you, uh, the members of our audience. And you're about to hear a story from one of our listeners in Chicago, Clay Stroop. I was in the waiting room at the doctor just for a routine checkup and next to me was an elderly woman with her daughter the older woman evidently had some form of dementia and her daughter was showing pictures and explaining with great patience that the two little girls in the photos are her great-granddaughters after some explaining and finally understanding the elderly woman proclaimed you mean I'm a great-grandmother that's wonderful Judging by the look on the daughter's face, it was probably the 100th time she's explained it, but she still treated it like the first. I tell you, it took all I could to keep from getting up and hugging everyone and keeping it all together. Love is so powerful. And it is, and we can always take those kind of short messages from you. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And thank you, Clay, for sharing that. And again, thank you, Rebecca Sabke of Dartmouth College. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we try to give you every kind of story here on this show, from American history to the arts to sports, and stories about ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things, and of course, business, and the great entrepreneurs and innovators of this great country, all of it. You can hear, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up, to subscribe to all that we do. We'll keep you up to date with a weekly newsletter. And go to iTunes and type in Our American Stories and search for our podcasts. There's so much there to enjoy. And now it's time for a story that's become legendary over the years. It's about a young criminal mastermind who was running away from the pain he was suffering over his parents' divorce. Though glamorized by Hollywood in the movie Catch Me If You Can, the first-hand account of what happened in the life of Frank Abagnale is just as remarkable as the film itself. Here's Jesse. Frank Abagnale is one of the best-known con men in American and perhaps world history. If you've seen Steven Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can... You know what kind of criminal we're talking about. From 1964 to 1967, I successfully impersonated an airline pilot for Pan Am Airways, and I flew over 2 million miles for free. During that time, I was also the chief resident pediatrician at a Georgia hospital and an assistant attorney general for the state of Louisiana. By the time I was caught, I was considered the youngest and most daring con man in U.S. history. I had cashed almost $4 million in fraudulent checks in 26 foreign countries and all 50 states. And I did it all before my 19th birthday. My name is Frank William Abagnale. While the film was highly entertaining, sometimes it's best just to get the story straight from the source. Especially when it's a story as convoluted as the one you're about to hear. Frank Abagnale spoke to Google what really happened in his transformation from one of the world's most notorious con men to an international cybersecurity superstar in film and print. The takeaways that he shares are the real deal. I was raised just north of New York City in Westchester County, New York. I was actually one of four children in the family, the so-called middle child of the four. I was educated there by the Christian Brothers of Ireland in a private Catholic school called Iona, where I went to school from kindergarten to high school. Something happened in young Frank's life that would shake him to the core. His parents were getting a divorce. I remember being in the 10th grade when the father walked in the classroom one afternoon, asked a brother to excuse me from class. When I came out in the hallway, the father handed me my books and told me that one of the brothers would drive me to the county seat in White Plains, New York, where I would meet my parents and they would explain what was going on. I remember the brother dropped me at the steps of a big stone building and told me to go on up the steps and my parents would be waiting for me in the lobby. I remember climbing the steps, seeing a sign on the building that said family court, but I really didn't understand what that meant. When I arrived in the lobby, my parents were not there, but I was ushered into the back of an immense courtroom where my parents were standing before a judge. I couldn't hear what the judge was saying, nor my parents' response, but eventually the judge saw me at the back of the room and motioned me to approach the bench, so I walked up to stand in between my parents. I remember distinctly that the judge never looked at me, He never acknowledged I was standing there. He simply read from his papers and said that my parents were getting a divorce. And because I was 16 years of age, I would need to tell the court which parent I chose to live with. I started to cry, so I turned and ran out of the courtroom. Judge called for a 10-minute recess, but by the time my parents got outside, I was gone. 
My mother never saw me again for about seven years until I was a young adult. Contrary to the movie, my father never saw me or ever spoke to me again. So Frank did what many young men would do faced with such a situation. He ran. In the mid-1960s, running away was a very popular thing for young people. A lot of them got caught up in Haight-Ashbury, the hippie scene, the drug scene. Instead, I took a few belongings from my home, packed them in a bag, ordered what was then the New Haven and Hartford Railroad for the short train ride down to Grand Central Terminal in New York. My father did own a stationery store in Manhattan. It was located on the corner of 40th and Madison. Like all of us, we had to work in that store, so from the time I was about 13, I made deliveries for my dad in the summer on a bike. I knew the city very well, so naturally, I started looking for the same type of work. There were a lot of signs on the window, stock boy, delivery boy, part-time. I'd walk in and apply. So tell me, young man, how old are you? Uh, 16. How far did you go in high school? Uh, 10th grade. I'll hire you. And I went to work for a small amount of money, a few hours a day, but I soon realized I couldn't support myself on that amount of money. I also realized as long as people believed I was 16 years old, they weren't going to pay me any more money. At 16, I was six foot tall. I've always had a little gray hair. My friends in school used to say that once a week when we dressed in a suit for mass, I looked more like a teacher. So I decided to lie about my age. In New York, we had a driver's license at 16. Back then, it didn't have a photo on it, just an IBM card. So I altered one digit of my date of birth. I was actually born in April of 1948, but I dropped the four, converted it to a three, and that made me 26 years old. I walked around applying for the same type of work. People gave me a little more money, a few more hours, but even then it was very difficult to make ends meet. By now you've probably noticed that Frank is an excellent storyteller, as you might expect a great con man to be. One of the few things I had taken when I left home was a checkbook. I had money from work on the summers. I had some money in that checking account. So every so often I would write a check to supplement my income, $20, $25. The funds were there, the checks were good, but it was my friends, my peers, who would constantly say to me, you know, you're the only guy who walks into a bank in the middle of Manhattan. You have no account there. You don't know a soul. You talk to somebody behind a desk and they okay your check. Oh, well, my checks are good. Yeah, but if I walked in there, they wouldn't touch my check. You walk in there, they don't bat an eye. Now, years later, reporters would write and speculate and say that that was my upbringing, mannerisms, dress, appearance, speech, whatever it was, it was very easy to do. So consequently, when the money ran out, I kept writing those checks. Of course, the checks started to bounce. Police started looking for me as a runaway. So I thought maybe it was a good time to start thinking about leaving New York City. But I was quite apprehensive about going to Chicago or Miami, wondered if they'd cash a New York check on a New York driver's license in Miami as quickly as they did in Manhattan. As the young con artist was just beginning to play with the world as he saw fit, Frank Abagnale would soon assume his role as the airline pilot. I was walking up 42nd Street one afternoon about 5 o'clock in the evening, 16 years old, pondering all of these things when I started to approach the front door of an old hotel that used to be there called the Commodore Hotel, now the Grand Hyatt. Just as I was about to get to the front door of the hotel, out stepped an Eastern Airline flight crew onto the sidewalk. I couldn't help but notice the captain, the co-pilot, the flight engineer, about three or four flight attendants dragging their bags to the curb to load them in the van to take them to the airport. As they loaded the van, I thought to myself, that's it, I could pose as a pilot. I could travel all over the world for free. I probably could get just about anybody anywhere to cash a check for me. 
So I walked up the street a little further to 42nd and Park. I went to cross over. I heard a huge helicopter. So I looked up and there was New York Airways landing on the roof of the Pan Am building. Pan Am, the nation's flag carrier, the airline that flew around the world. I thought, what a perfect airline to use. So the next day I placed a phone call to the executive corporate offices of Pan Am. I remember distinctly when the phone was ringing, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to say. When they answered, Pan American Airlines, good morning, can I help you? Uh, yes, ma'am. I'd like to... Um, I'd like to speak to somebody in the uh, purchasing department. Purchasing? One moment. And the clerk came on and said, yes, sir, maybe you can help me. My name is uh, John Black. I'm a co-pilot with the company based out of San Francisco. Been with the company about seven years, but never had anything like this come up before. Oh, what's the problem? Well, we flew a trip in here yesterday. We're going out later today. Uh, yesterday, I sent my uniform out through the hotel to have it dry clean. Now the hotel and the cleaners say they can't find it. Yeah, I'm with the flight in about four hours. New uniform. Don't you have a spare uniform? Certainly. Back home in San Francisco, but I'd never get it here in time for my flight. Uh, do you understand this will cost you the price of uniform, not the company? But I understand. Hold on, I'll be right back. He came back and said, my supervisor says you need to go down to the well-built uniform company on Fifth Avenue. They're our supplier. I'll call them and let them know you're on the way. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to know. So I went down to the well-built uniform company. Little fellow, Mr. Rosen, fit me out in the uniform, the black Aberdeen, with three gold stripes on the arm. I certainly looked old enough to be the pilot. When he was all done, I said, how much do I owe you? Well, the uniform's $286. So no problem, I'll write you a check. No, um, <laughs> we can't take any checks. Oh, well, then I'll, um, I'll just pay you cash. No, we can't accept cash. You need to fill out this computer card. Then in these boxes, put your employee number. Then we bill this back on the uniform allowance, comes out of your next Pan Am paycheck. Well, that's even better. Go ahead and do that. <laughs> when we come back, the technical logistics behind pulling off a con that would fool a major airline into cashing checks and letting you fly around the world for free. It all started with a fake ID. This is Our American Stories. Turn to the story of the real-life Frank Abagnale. As told by Frank himself, he successfully performed cons worth millions of dollars by posing as a Pan Am World Airways pilot, a Georgia doctor, a Louisiana parish prosecutor. And now we return to his story. Here's Jesse. Logistics of securing a fake airline pilot ID badge with the intent of using it to get on and off or in and out of a plane seems like a daunting task, to say the least. But Frank, Frank makes it sound so easy. I was sitting in the hotel room. I noticed a big, thick Manhattan yellow pages, so I pulled them down on the bed, flipped them open, and looked under the word identification. 
There were three or four pages of companies who made convention badges, metal badges, plastic badges, police badges, fire badges, started to call around, and finally one company said, listen, most of those airline IDs manufactured by Polaroid, 3M company, need to call one of them. Finally got the 3M company on the phone in Manhattan. Yeah, we manufacture Pan Am's identification system, along with a number of other carriers. How come? So I tell you, I'm a purchasing officer for a major U.S. carrier. I'm in New York just for the day. We're getting ready to expand our routes, hire a lot of new employees, go to a formal ID. We're very impressed with this Pan Am format. Wondered if I came by your office this afternoon briefly, we could discuss quantity and price. By all means, come on by. So I went by dressed in a suit and the sales rope opened the book. Yeah, we do United, Braniff, National, Pan Am, Pan Am. We like this Pan Am format. Wonder if you have a sample I could bring back. Sure, I'll be right back. And he brought me back a five by seven glossy piece of paper with a picture of an ID card blown up in the middle of it. Someone else's picture in the picture. John Doe for a name, and in bold red ink across the front, this is a sample only. I said, no, I'm afraid this one do you know, I need to bring back an actual physical card. And by the way, what is all this equipment on the floor? Oh, now, we don't just sell these cards. We sell the system, camera, laminator. Oh, we have to buy all this? Absolutely. But tell you what, since we have to buy it all, why don't we just demonstrate how it works and use me? Fine, have a seat right here. Took my picture and there's the card. Just imagine being a 17-year-old kid with the ability to fly all over the world pretending to be a pilot while cashing bad checks at every airport along the way and becoming filthy rich in the process. Once the sky's the limit, how high one can fly. Pan Am says they estimate that between the ages of 16 and 18, I flew more than a million miles for free, boarded more than 260 commercial aircraft in more than 26 countries around the world. Pan Am says, keep in mind the fact that Frank Abagnale did in fact pose as one of our pilots for a long period of time. He never once stepped on board one of our aircraft. That's true. I never flew on Pan Am because I was afraid someone might say to me, you know, I'm based in San Francisco, been out there 16 years. I don't recall ever meeting you before. Or someone might say, you know, your ID card is not exactly like my ID card. So instead, I flew on everyone else. If I wanted to go somewhere, I literally just walked out to the airport, walked up on the board, United Flight 800 to Chicago, then I went downstairs to the door marked United Operations and walked in. The operations clerk, hey, Pan Am, what can we do for you? So one of the jump seats open on 800 needed it at Chicago. It's open this evening, I'd like to get a pink slip pass. I'd give him my ID, write me out a pass, I'd walk out, hand it to the flight attendant, she'd open the door to the cockpit, and I'd step in. They had a captain, a co-pilot, a flight engineer in a seat behind the captain called the jump suit, where pilots deadhead on company time. Now, being a criminal mastermind is a lot of work, and Frank was bringing the hustle, scamming banks and airlines from 9 to 5. I'd go down the Parma House Hilton, walk in, and on the corner of the registration desk was a little sign that said, Airline Cruise. That was a three-ring binder you signed in, referenced your flight number, showed your ID. They'd give me a key. I'd stay two or three days, and Pan Am would be direct billed for my room and my meals. I also could cash a personal check at the front desk because I was an employee of the airline. The airline had a contract with the hotel, and as a courtesy, they'd cash your check. But then I found out that every airline honors every other airline employee's personal check. Actually, a reciprocal agreement still practiced today in 2017. So at the San Francisco airport, a Delta flight attendant can walk up to an American airline ticket counter, show her ID, and cash a personal check up to $100 and vice versa. Of course, when I found that out, I'd go out to JFK or LAX, only I'd go to everybody, Northeast, National, KLM, Air France. 
it would take me a good eight hours stopping at every counter and every building. By the time I got all the way around the other end of the airport, at least eight hours had gone by. And what did you have in eight hours? Shift change, new people. So I'd go all the way back around the other way again. Impersonating pilots, doctors, lawyers, flying all over the world with millions of dollars he'd built out of every bank that would cash his check. He was inevitably caught. Of course, like any criminal, sooner or later you get caught, and I was no exception to that rule. I was actually arrested just once in my life when I was 21 years old by the French police in a small town in southern France called Montpellier. The French police were actually arresting me on an Interpol warrant issued by the Swedish police who were looking for me for forgery in Sweden but believed that I was living in France. When the French authorities took me into custody on that warrant, they realized I had forged checks all over France, so they refused to honor the warrant and Sweden's request for my extradition. They later convicted me of forgery and sent me to French prison. I served my time in a place called the Maison d'Array, the house of arrest in a small town in southern France called Pepignan. Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters, it was extremely important to me to go back to that cell, to the exact cell he was in, and reconstruct it according to the logbooks during his stay there. He said, to my amazement, that was a blanket on the floor, no mattress, a hole in the floor to go to the bathroom, no plumbing, no electricity. He said, according to the logbooks, I entered the prison at 198 pounds, left the prison at 109 pounds. When my sentence was over in France, I was extradited to Sweden, where I was later convicted of forgery in a Swedish court of law, and sent to a Swedish penitentiary in Malmö, Sweden. When my prison term was up in Sweden, U.S. federal authorities took custody of me and returned me to the United States. Eventually, a United States federal judge in Atlanta, Georgia, would sentence me to 12 years in federal prison. I served four of the 12 years at a federal prison in Petersburg, Virginia. When I was 26 years old, the government offered to take me out of prison on the condition I go to work with an agency of the federal government for the remainder of my sentence or until my parole had been satisfactorily completed. I agreed and was released. That agency is the FBI, where Frank continues to work to this day. This year I'm celebrating 41 years at the FBI. I've been at the Bureau for more than four decades. I work out of Washington, D.C. I actually make my home in Charleston, South Carolina. So every Monday I fly up to Washington, about an hour flight, and I go home on Thursday evenings. I live in Charleston with my one and only wife of 40 plus years and my three sons. And when we come back, Frank Abagnale shares his thoughts of regret and remorse over his criminal life as a young man. Find out what really happened right here on Our American Stories. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. And what a story, and that's what we do here on Our American Stories. You hear from the people themselves as often as possible about their own stories, your stories too. And you can go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up there, register with us, give us some details, and we'll be able to get back in touch with you about all that we do each week. And again, go to iTunes and search for Our American Stories. And when we come back, more from Frank Abagnale. What a story, folks. Just a little bit different than the movie. More after these messages. Once I get you up there, I'll be holding you so near. You may. 
Angels cheer cause we're together Weather-wise it's such a lovely day Just say the words and we'll beat the birds down to Acapulco Bay It's perfect for a flying honeymoon, they say Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away Once I get you up there Where the air is rarefied This is Our American Stories and we return to the story of Frank Abagnale who is played beautifully by Leonardo DiCaprio in Steven Spielberg's highly entertaining 2002 film, Catch Me If You Can. By the way, it did worldwide ticket sales of over $350 million, or six times more than the $52 million the movie cost to make. The film was shot in more than 140 locations in just 52 days. That's an average of almost three locations a day, many of them in and around L.A., but quite a few in New York, Montreal... And as anyone who's worked on a film set can tell you, even a move of a few blocks is a pretty big undertaking. Spielberg and his crew worked fast. And now back to the real story of Frank Abagnale and Catch Me If You Can. Here's Jesse. In this candid speech that the real-life Frank Abagnale gave to Google about his criminally mischievous adventures, he doesn't see himself as a legend of any sort. And unlike how he might be perceived by his fans is ultimately remorseful for the sins of his youth. As many of you know, I had very little to do with the film. Um, I would have preferred not to have a movie made about my life. I actually raised my three boys in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the same house for 25 years. My neighbors had no idea who I was. And I would have preferred it stayed that way. But Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters he felt compelled to tell the world the story, not because of what I did, but because of what I'd done with my life after that. He loved the redemption side of the story, wanted the world to know the story. So in the end, my family and I were very pleased with the outcome of the film, but we thought in a couple of years that would all be forgotten and move on with our life. I never dreamed that Catch Me If You Can would go on to earn more than a billion dollars for DreamWorks and be shown over and over, literally every week on HBO and TV, and then become a... <laughs> Broadway musical and a TV show. So consequently, every Monday morning when I come to work, I have emails. They come from all over the world. Someone who's seeing the movie for the first time, watching the play at a community theater or a high school somewhere, and they feel compelled to write. And of course, they come from people literally as young as eight years old sending those emails to people as old as 80. Most people assume I'll never read those emails or see those emails, but they feel compelled to write and they want to make a statement. Some say, you know, you were brilliant. You were an absolute genius. I was neither. I was just a child. Had it been brilliant, had it been a genius, I don't know that I would have found it necessary to break the law in order to just simply survive. 
And while I know that people are fascinated by what I did some 50 years ago as a teenage boy, I've always looked upon what I did as something that was immoral, illegal, unethical, and a burden I live with literally every single day of my life and will until my death. The great Frank Abagnale, one of the greatest con men in history, haunted by the immoral and unethical acts of theft and forgery. It turns out that Frank had been running away from his parents' divorce since he was a child. There are many who write and say, well, you know, you were certainly gifted. That I was. I was one of those few children that got to grow up in the world with a daddy. Now, the world is, the world is full of fathers. But there are very few men worthy of being called daddy by their child. I had a daddy. Loved his children more than he loved life itself. Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters, the more I researched Frank's youth, now without having met Frank, I couldn't help but put his father in the film through the likes of Christopher Walken. My father was a man who had four children, three boys and a daughter. Every night at bedtime, he'd walk into your room. He was 6'3". He would drop down on one knee, kiss you on the cheek, pull the cover up, and he'd put his lip up on your earlobe and he'd whisper deep into your ear, I love you, I love you very much. He never, ever missed a night. As I grew older, I sometimes fell asleep before he got home, but I always woke up the next morning, knew he had been at my bedside. Years later, my older brother joined me in my room temporarily. He was in the Marine Corps. He was 6'4". He played semi-pro football for Buffalo, but my father would walk around to his bed, hug him, kiss him, whisper in his ear he loved him. When I was 16 years old, I was just a child. All 16-year-olds are just children. Much as we'd like them to be adults, they're just children. And like all children, they need their mother and they need their father. All children need their mother and their father. All children are entitled to their mother and their father. And though it is not popular to say so, divorce is a very devastating thing for a child to deal with and then have to deal with the rest of their natural life. For me, a complete stranger, a judge, told me I had to choose one parent over the other. That was a choice a 16-year-old boy could not make. So I ran. While Frank was running farther away from the pain of his parents' divorce, his father had an accident, and Frank never got to say goodbye. How could I tell you my life was glamorous? I cried myself to sleep till I was 19 years old. I spent every birthday, Christmas, Mother's Day, Father's Day in a hotel room somewhere in the world where people didn't speak my language. The only people that associated with me were people who believed me to be their peer, 10 years older than I actually was. I never got to go to a senior prom, high school football game, share a relationship with someone my own age. I always knew I'd get caught. Only a fool would think otherwise. The law sometimes sleeps, but the law never dies. I was caught. I went to some very bad places. My boys have grown up asking their mother, why is it that dad gets up in the middle of the night and goes down the TV room? Because, you know, he doesn't turn the TV on. He just sits there all night. That's because there are things you can't forget, things you're not meant to forget. While I was sitting in that pitch black cell in France, my father, 57, was climbing the subway stairs of New York as he did every day. He was in great physical shape. He just happened to trip. He reached his arm to break his fall. He slipped, hit his head on a railing, landed at the bottom of the step. He was dead. I didn't know he was dead. 
I was thinking about him, how much I couldn't wait to see him, hold him, hug him, kiss him, tell him how sorry I was. But I never got the opportunity to do that. With all the ups and downs in Frank's life, he remains grateful to the country that gave him a second chance. In closing this speech that you can hear again at OurAmericanNetwork.org, the great Frank Abagnale's crown achievement isn't his famously criminal shenanigans, but his family. This is Our American Stories. I was very fortunate because I was raised in a great country where everyone gets a second chance. I owe my country 800 times more than I can ever repay it over these past four decades. That is why I'm at the FBI today, 32 years after the federal court order expired requiring me to do so. I have turned down three pardons from three sitting presidents of the United States because I do not believe, nor will I ever believe, that a piece of paper will excuse my actions, that only in the end my actions will. Forty-plus years ago, on an undercover assignment in Houston, Texas, I met my wife. When the assignment was over, I broke protocol to tell her who I really was. I didn't have a dime to my name, but I eventually asked her to marry me. Against the wishes of her parents, she did. I could sit up here and tell you that I was born again, I, I saw the light, prison rehabilitated me. But the truth is, God gave me a wife. She gave me three beautiful children. She gave me a family, and she changed my life. She and she alone. Everything I have, everything I've achieved, who I am today, is because of the love of a woman and the respect three boys have for their father, something I would never, ever jeopardize. There comes a time in all of our lifetime we grow older, and eventually, if we're fortunate enough, we have children. And as every parent knows, whether your child's three months old or... 38 years old, when you lay your head on a pillow at night, you're just about to close your eyes. The last thing you think about, last thing you worry about, are your children. So if you still have your mother, you still have your father, you give them a hug, you give them a kiss, you tell them you love them, why you can. And to those men in the audience, both young and old, I would remind you what it truly is to actually be a man. It has absolutely nothing to do with money achievements, skills, accomplishments, degrees, professions, positions. A real man loves his wife. A real man is faithful to his wife. And a real man next to God and his country put his wife and his children as the most important thing in his life. Steven Spielberg made a wonderful film, but I've done nothing greater, nothing more rewarding, nothing more worthwhile, nothing that's actually brought me more peace, more joy, more happiness, more content in my life than simply being a good husband, a good father, and what I strive to be every day of my life, a great daddy. God bless you, and thanks for coming this morning. (laughs) And that's a heck of a story. That dad who whispered I love you in his ear every night, never missed a night, Frank remembers. I cried myself to sleep until I was 19 years old. And he never wanted that pardon. Didn't want it. Wanted to remember what he did. And of course, talking about family, which we do so much of here on this show, he thanks God first, he thanks his wife second, and the family, and that's what it's all about. And for any of you contemplating divorce, you're hearing or Thinking about this story, as you contemplate that divorce, think about it. Think about your kids. Think about reconciling. Think about forgiving. 
Think about keeping it together. Because listen to young Frank. You can still hear that young voice, that pain of that divorce. And it is devastating. You heard it from Frank Abagnale himself. This is Our American Stories. Frank Abagnale's story. In a way, his entire family's story. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org again to hear that story and all that we do. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we like to tell stories about everything here on this show, art, commerce, history, faith, and this one is a local story. I mean, it's a story that, well, it could happen anywhere in the country and does happen anywhere in the country, and Sammy Smith works here at Ole Miss in Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast just about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee, and he's the director of character development for Ole Miss football. Uh, with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And Sammy Smith, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You bet. Sammy, let's start where we always start when we do our in-depths with uh, people we talk to on the show in our in-depth segments. And talk about where you were born and talk about your parents. Well, I was born in a little small town uh, in Florida. Actually, the town that I was born in was not small. It was Orlando. I was born in Orlando, Memorial Hospital. But I, uh, my parents lived in a little small town called Zellwood. Uh, very few people there. Um, it was a community that was a migrant community uh, known for farming. Uh, one of the things that Zellwood, Florida, was famous for was corn. Uh, we had a, a corn festival every May that people would come from all over the country to come be a part of. So um, I grew up there in that area. I had a great mom and dad, uh, two younger brothers, and uh, uh, that's where I spent the first, you know, 18 years of my life. I went to uh, uh, Popka High School, which is a school just north of Orlando, Florida. And, and talk about the, the community, the, the mixture of people who live there. You said it was a migrant community. Talk about the, the mix of folks that live there, the types of people who are your neighbors. Well, um, the community that I was in was, was more of a black community, but uh, across the tracks, you know, we had uh, uh, Caucasian people. There were some uh, Hispanic people that lived in the area. Uh, so it was a it was a nice mixture of folks. Um, I went to school with uh, uh, both Hispanics and uh, Caucasian folks, so it wasn't like I was in a in a community that was just uh, segregated or anything. You know, we were all um, a part of a, a great little community in Zellwood, and some of my uh, dearest and longest friends now are some of those people that I grew up with as a child. That's great. And talk about then your when did you first know you had. Uh, some athletic talent. Talk about your first discovery about your your abilities uh, on the gridiron and in other places. Talk about sports in general. Something tells me you may have been good at more than one sport, Sammy. Well, I started playing football in the streets of Zellwood. We played sandlock football. You don't see kids doing that a lot now. No, you but don't. But, man, we used to uh, have some hard, you know, 
no pads tackling football and uh, enjoyed it. Uh, it was something that we were raised doing, and I think that's why our football program at Apopka, even to this day, is still is a great program. Um, so just love the game of football. Uh, my dad played football when he was in, a younger man and in high school, and uh, he grew up in a time when, of course, there was a it was during segregation, so he didn't have an opportunity to go off to college. But so I always had to hear about uh, how great a football player he was, and uh, they used to call my dad the goose. And I had to hear stories all the time about man. Whenever we went to watch your dad play, we we we, we waiting for him to make a big play so we could say the goose is on the loose. <laughs> so you know that's the community that I grew up in. I grew up. Uh, probably at the age of 10 years old, I noticed that I had a lot of uh, special abilities because I was able to play with the kids that were, you know, 13, 14 years old and, you know, mix it up right with them. And your size, by the time you were a senior, uh, talk about your size, your speed, and what what you did on the gridiron, you know, how you uh, ran, the number of yards you accumulated. Uh, You had some kind of high school record, Sammy. Well, I um, grew up loving track and field. Uh, I was a sprinter, but I was a big sprinter. Um, all through middle school, I won, you know, county track meets in the 100 and 200 meters. And then I went to high school. And, you know, in high school, I was a big tailback. I was 215, 20 pounds. And, you know, I was a 4'3", 40 guy. I was a 10, 10, 300 meter guy, state champion, 100 meter, state champion, 200 meter guy. And ran track all through college and high school and uh, just – God just blessed me with a lot of ability. So I, I came out during the era where my favorite player was Herschel Walker. So and I kind of modeled my game after him. I, I, I was in that mold of a Herschel Walker, Bo Jackson type tailback. Yeah, and those were guys that had the size and the speed, one at Auburn, of course, and uh, one at the University of Georgia. And so you, you get all kinds of offers. What's this like as a high school senior? And so many of us see this, this pressure on young athletes, but there are also some great opportunities. And I would assume that there, you had a lot of great coaches calling on you and your family. Um, how did your family handle all that, by the way? And how did they keep you humble when all this was happening? Because, my goodness, it's so easy for a young athlete to forget that they're human beings and they're like everyone else in the school. How did they keep you in place? How did you come to the decision to pick the college you picked? Well, I had a great high school football coach, Coach uh, Chip Gerke, and uh, I was blessed enough to have uh, a, a couple of guys that kind of went on before me out of my high school. Uh, one of the guys that, that, that grew up in my neighborhood that was probably, you know, five, four or five years older than me, his name was Cedric Anderson. He was one of the first ones from our high school to, to go big-time college football, and he went to Ohio State. And uh, so I had the opportunity to – for him to come back during the summers and, you know, kind of talk to us and encourage us of how to, uh, what to expect on the next level. And I started going to FSU football camps, I think, when I was probably in eighth grade. And, and that's I, Florida State. Florida State. And I, I just fell in love with Coach Bowden, uh, his staff that was there. Uh, University of Florida was an hour and a half away from me, and I would go up sometimes to watch their games. But uh, Tallahassee was my draw. You know, that's it. it kind of drew me there, and I, I just loved that community. Uh, had a little um, uncertainty about where I was going to go when I was being recruited because I was recruited by some great people. Uh, Vince Dooley, I had a great amount of respect for him at Georgia. And, again, I told you earlier I was a Herschel Walker fan, so I loved Georgia. And then Bo Schimbeckler out at Michigan. I visited there and just, just loved Coach Schimbeckler so you know, three of the probably best coaches at that time were 
coaches that I really had an affinity for. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, I just couldn't see myself going anywhere other than being in Tallahassee and playing for Coach Bowden and the coaching staff that was there and and uh, the great class that we had that came in that year. You know, Deion Sanders, a good friend of, friend of mine now that was a part of that freshman class that we brought in in 1985 at Florida State. Well, the Florida boy stays home in Florida. When we come back, more of the life of Sammy Smith, an Oxford man now, a Florida man most of his life, uh, but we like to call him a fellow Oxonian. And when we come back, more of Sammy's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. In our in-depth hour today, we spend it with someone local. And you may not know the name. If you're a football fan, you do, and you remember it, uh, Sammy Smith. And we left off with Sammy choosing Florida State and a legendary coach, Bobby Bowden. And talk about, first of all, what you saw in Bobby, and we've had Bobby on the show. And talk about what your parents saw in Bobby, because I'm sure your parents had something to do with his choice. If you have any kind of parents, I know my parents had a lot to do with almost every major decision I had in my life. Even today, I still talk to my dad about things I'm going to do next. Uh, talk about those things. Well, just just what a great recruiter Coach Bowden was. I mean, when you hear the stories about how he come, come into uh, players' homes and uh, the immediate impact that he had on the moms, well, those are true because he came into my house and uh, uh, I knew right away that, Certainly, I wanted to go to Florida State, but just him coming and interacting with my mom and dad just kind of you know stamped the seal. I mean, they loved him. Uh, they knew that he would be a coach that uh, would would care for us. You know, our, his players would care for me. Uh, would go out of the way to make sure that um, I was doing things the right way. Um, that would be a, a father figure towards uh, me away from home. Uh, he was just a great man, a man that uh, had, you know wore, wore his faith on his sleeves and on his shoulders. He was just a great, great, great man. And uh, uh, without a doubt, probably the most influential man I've had in my life outside of my dad. Uh, he was just a great, great, great coach to play for. And by the way, we hear this over and over again. We've heard this on our, on our hour on Bear Bryant. We heard it on our hour with John Wooden, guys talking about Coach Wooden 10, 20, 30, 40 years after having experience with Indeed, when we played the uh, funeral eulogies of Coach Wooden, mm-hmm. it was remarkable to see men in their 50s, 67, and this went beyond race, class, creed. It was, he loved me like a father. Mm-hmm. He was hard on me, but I needed that kind of hard. But he was never mean to me, and he's always building me up. And he always expected more out of me than I did. And that was really the remarkable mm-hmm. part of Coach Wooden's legacy. And by the way, we learned that Coach had a deep, deep and abiding faith. Mm-hmm. Um, ESPN rarely covers these matters, the faith of so many of these coaches. They sort of leave it out and shame on them. Again, again this faith crosses races. We did Eddie Robinson's story. And my goodness, the degree to which he appealed to the moms and the mm-hmm. dads as he recruited people and young, young men in particular grambling was an integral part of his life. Same with Bear Bryant. Talk a bit about some of the things you learned as a young man playing for uh, Coach Bowden. Well, you know, you don't know it at the time, but uh, 
coaches in general and, and people that are impacting your lives can speak things into your life that, uh, that, that, that don't show up until later in life. And, uh, uh, that's what happened with me. I, I knew who Coach Bowden was. I always had a great relationship with him, uh, knew what he stood for. And it would be later on in my life uh, when I would go through some some difficult times that I would remember something that he said, you know, that would encourage me to uh, to get up and to keep going and to keep pressing forward. And, uh, uh, again, just a tremendous uh, leader. Um, I've had the opportunity now working for FCA for about six years now on many occasions to be at different places where he's speaking for FCA and I'm the one that's uh, introducing him and sharing, you know, a story or two here. And uh, I get more gratitude out of that uh, than I ever did as a player because I get to really express, you know, who he is to me, uh, what he's meant to me. And it's not even about the football, but it's about the, the other life lessons and things that I've uh, learned through his uh, tutelage. Indeed, and you wish that sometimes kids in schools had that kind of tutelage inside the school and not just on the gridiron. And it's something we talk about time and again is some of these unique relationships that get forged between coaches and players, and yet teachers don't get that same latitude to either punish, reward. Mm -hmm. They're sort of restricted to just handling the kid on the curriculum level, mm-hmm. level and not on the moral level and the development of character level, which is in the end what life's all about. Yeah. Let's talk about your, your performance on the gridiron, Sammy. I mean, you had quite a career at Florida State. Highlight it for us. Top line for folks who aren't football fans, what that career looked like at FSU. Well, I came in um, really a highly rated offensive player. I think I was the top running back in the country that year coming out and uh, went there with great expectations and, uh, certainly, there were expectations that I placed on myself, uh, too. And uh, uh, Florida State at that time was sort of uh, in the bottom, you know, feeder of college. We, they weren't really that good. But uh, I saw something in Florida State that I thought uh, could be tremendous down the road. And uh, when I signed there and got Deion Sanders to sign, and uh, we had guys, uh, Chip Ferguson, uh, Peter Tom Willis, just to name a few guys, uh, Pat Tomlin. And we had an amazing football class. And uh, I saw the opportunity that down the road we would be a great football program. And, and to just see that happen, I think, in 1987 was when I had a breakout year. I had my best year there at Florida State. And, and uh, man, we had a fun offense. You know, we ran the ball. We threw it around a lot. Um, I think I averaged over seven yards a carry that year. Um, I, I used to always – uh, tell my running back coach, Coach Billy Sexton, man, you guys should have gave me the ball about seven or eight more times a game. I, I might have been able to get 2,000 yards. But, um, you know, just a joy, enjoyable time there. I held the single-season Russian record there, I think, for about seven or eight years prior to uh, work done coming and having a spectacular year. And certainly uh, his record has since been broke, broken by Dalvin Cook. And now we got a, a young one down there now that, that could uh, – rewrite all the record books if he stays there for four years, uh, Cam Akers. Oh, you bet, you bet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in, and rooting for them, I know, because so many athletes I know, they love, having, mm-hmm. you know, they love having the records, but you know, great, great athletes are mm-hmm. also rooting for that next generation to surpass them if they can. Let's talk about uh, all that attention. You're, you're now getting ready to go into the NFL. What's that like? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of you guys aren't, that you're playing with aren't going to make it to the NFL. You're now picked and you're drafted. Uh, there's a lot of joy in that, but yet you're leaving some of the guys mm-hmm. behind too. What's that like, um, and how do you handle all that? Because now you're going to the big leagues, and with that comes a lot of accolades, a lot of 
Well, all kinds of other things come that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, money comes that way, something you didn't have like you were about to have. And talk about that. Put, put, put us in your shoes mm-hmm. as a young man about to go from a, a guy with maybe enough scratch and enough money in your pocket to take your girl out to Denny's, and now you're a multimillionaire mm-hmm. overnight. Well, I tell you, that, that's one of the, the, the things I enjoy most about uh, the role I have now and the position I'm in now is that, um, you know, you go through things in life and, 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 and you maybe they're not the best things. Sometimes they are good. Uh, but any of those uh, situations are benefit to other people. And uh, I get to share that, that opportunity that I had years ago to become an NFL football player and um, the, the, the good choices that I made, the bad choices that I made that would hopefully uh, – encourage uh, young men to uh, do things the right way, you know, see things a little different because at that age, I think it's no different now than it was then. Um, you, you, you think you're invincible. Uh, you're getting ready to have uh, the time of your life and uh, you don't really realize that, man, that, that God has blessed you with this opportunity, but that opportunity is, is, is uh, finite. You know, it's not an infinite opportunity. It's going to come and it's going to go. And uh, what you do with that small window that God has given you to be a, a professional football player matters. And uh, so, you know, uh, I was excited just like anyone else would be that I was going to be able to do for my parents, going to be able to have things that I wanted to have and uh, uh, be able to create a life for myself. I was married at the time with a with a little girl, so I was excited about being able to provide for my family and uh, take care of my, my little girl and my wife, but certainly um, um, made some choices and, 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 and mistakes that uh, cost me dearly. Talk to us now. You're, you're in the NFL. Um, who, who drafts you? It's, again, a Florida team. It's the Miami Dolphins. Um, who are you playing with? Who's your coach? What's going on? And talk about your NFL career. Well, I was drafted in 1989 by the Miami Dolphins, as you mentioned. Uh, coach Don Shula was my coach. Uh, Dan Marino was my quarterback. We had great, great players there. Uh, Mark Duper, Mark Clayton, receivers, Jim Jensen. Um, but but that was what that was. You know, I got an opportunity to play in my home state and was excited about the opportunity to play for the Miami Dolphins and uh, uh, was really looking forward to having a great career there. And uh you know, as, as, as things would turn out, uh, it wasn't the career that I really expected. You know, I, one of the things I, I share with uh, our young men now is because a lot of these young men, they come from small communities. I left a little small town of Zellwood. I went to Tallahassee, which at the time seemed like a metropolis to me, but it was small. And then to leave there and to go to Miami was a, certainly a life-changing event for me. Um, um, just a, a whole different world down in Miami you know, for, for a small-town boy like myself and uh, uh, got involved with uh, uh, different people, met a lot of different people, and just uh, got exposed to a whole different world than I was really used to. Yeah, and it's hard to prepare anybody for something mm-hmm. like that. You can tell them about it. You can lecture them about it. But one day they got to actually experience it themselves and make some choices, mm-hmm. and they're going to make some good ones. And you can bet at that age they're almost guaranteed to make some bad ones, no matter yes. what the upbringing. It's just that's life. We all make good and bad choices, and hopefully we can learn from them. Well, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Sammy Smith from small-town Florida to big-time football in Florida and to the NFL. And the rest of this story, well, it just gets better. It gets more complicated. And it gets deeper and more beautiful as we continue it. This is Lee Habib, Sammy Smith's story, here on Our American Stories. 
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation, our in-depth conversation, and we love digging in and doing deep dives with some of the big leaders in this country, and you've heard us do segments on all kinds of them, and go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to our leadership series and the beginning of our in-depth series, and we continue again with Sammy Smith. 1990 is a tough year for you, Sammy, and let's start first with the loss of your Mm two-month-old son, Jared, to infant death syndrome. By the way, on this show, we spend a month um, honoring the loss of, of sudden death mm-hmm. uh, and infant de- and infant loss and, and, of course, miscarriages, too. Um, not enough time is spent on this. And millions and millions of Americans, and women in particular, uh, when they go through a miscarriage, it is simply the worst moment of their mm-hmm. life. And yet, because it's not a born baby, well, a lot of people just sort of discount it and they don't understand that woman to that woman mm-hmm. and to that husband. That was a baby that just uh, was lost. And yeah. talk about that loss and what it, what it did to you, Sammy. Well, that, that, that was a time in my life when I believed that uh, God was really moving and working some things and really trying to get me in a, in a state in my life to where I would, would really seek him, you know, seek God and, and, and understand and, and realize where all the blessings had come from me. I think at, at some point in my life during that time, I kind of forgot where I came from. And it started really with uh, uh, my career that year, that season. I had uh, a really bad, uh, it wasn't that bad, but I had a knee injury in uh, preseason football that kept me out of the preseason and had to come back and perform and didn't perform that well. And and then I had to, this happened with my son. Um, and my son was two months old. I'll never forget that night. It was a uh, a bye week, actually, and I was home. I uh, went to Orlando that weekend and um, left Miami. And that same night that I left to go to Orlando, something told me, go home. So I left a bunch of friends that were hanging out with me at, at one of the clubs there. And and I got in my car and drove back to Miami. Now, mind you, I just drove three and a half hours to spend the weekend down there, but something was drawing me back home. And I would get home about, uh, two thirty, three o'clock in the morning. Uh, my wife didn't even know I was coming home, and the first place I went to was my son's crib. And when I reached in there to to, to, to check on my son, I felt this cold body, and you know he had passed. And I know that that was a that was a God moment. That was a God thing. I I know that He wanted me to be there. He wouldn't have wanted my wife to wake up that next morning and be there. And I'm wailing Orlando, and she's in Miami, and we've got a son that's passed. So, um. That was a time in my life that was uh, really traumatic. It was a time that um, I really questioned God, um, really couldn't understand how I could uh, God would allow us to have a, a son and allow us to only have him for two months and then take him. So I was in a really depressed state at that time. And let's talk about next, the uh, and this is the, the trauma that perhaps really sparks almost mm-hmm. a new awakening in your life. Uh, but it may have been the low point as well, mm-hmm. and that's uh, being arrested uh, for drug charges. Mm-hmm. And and talk about that, uh, Sammy. How did this happen? How did how did the arrest occur? And what what was this like mm-hmm. for you, for your family, particularly, and and friends? Uh, what were you going through? Talk about these moments. Well, this was after my career, after a four year career. I was out of football, and uh, I had moved back home. I had left Denver. That was the last team I played for, and and. Uh, Certainly had had some traumatic uh, things happen with the loss of my son, with the with the way my career had ended, ended with an injury and uh, my performance. And 
And I came back to Florida wanting to do some positive things. I had started a company and was building homes for uh, people that couldn't afford homes. And we were holding mortgages, just trying to help people out in our community to be able to have nice homes. And uh, uh, I got around some friends. of once one particular friend that came to me and asked me, could he borrow some money? And I was well off, and I loaned him money. And it was less than a week later, he came back and paid me. You know, it was $10,000. And he paid me money on top of it. And, of course, I want to know how, how can you afford to pay me money like this. And and that's where it all got started. He was involved in drugs, and and I want to know more about it. And that's that's what the enemy does. When you're trying to live and, 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 to, and, to, and to do things the right way, the enemy will always come at you with some form of way of getting you back or getting his hooks in you. And uh, I made the choice to get involved with some friends and, uh, it would be 10 months later, man, I'm getting a knock on my door. It's the DEA. You know, I'm in some serious trouble. And uh, I really didn't know how I had allowed that to happen. That, that first night I got arrested, man, I, it was just mind-boggling to me that I had let that happen, that, that, that stepped that low into getting involved into something that I had never agreed with, had always encouraged these guys to try and do something better. And what I found myself was, man, my identity was always placed in sports and in football. And and, and, and I found during that time that um, that was God's way of, of, of allowing me to really see how important it was for my identity to be, be in him. And I, that first night I got arrested, man, I never forget sitting in the Orange County Jail. And uh, that's the first night that I was fully broken and knowing that, you know, man, there was another way for me. And I asked God to change me right then. And there, knowing what I was facing, uh, I apologized to God for how unfrugal I had been with all the gifts and talents that he had given me, and I asked him for another opportunity, whenever that was going to come, for me to be able to serve and to be a, a different person and to be able to make a difference in people's lives. Well, and you knew it right away, which was good, and, 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 and responded to that right away. And uh, the, the, the fact that you were an NFL athlete, well, the media had to just Eat this mm-hmm. up, Sammy. I mean, sometimes you get disparate treatment in this great country because you're poor, mm-hmm. sometimes because you're black, and sometimes because you're rich. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, you learn quickly that sometimes somebody like a Martha Stewart can find herself mm-hmm. under the crossfire because she's Martha Stewart. Yes. And uh, talk about that, that media frenzy, and what that felt like. Well, I can remember being able to watch some of it on the news from jail. And I can remember the, uh, the media being in our community and, and being in the communities that were close around, you know, Zellwood, Apopka, uh, Mount Dora, those areas, and kind of interviewing people. And, and people knew my character, and they they knew that that wasn't Sammy Smith. So you got all these people that, that loved me that were, you know, doing interviews saying, no way, they're, 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 you know, they're pinning this on Sammy. He would never do this. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, no, I did it. And how, how did I allow this to happen? How did I allow the enemy to fool me like this? And it was hurtful. Um, you know, the, the, the local policemen uh, and the, and the uh, Metro Bureau of Investigative People and the sheriff, uh, they all painted the picture that I was this uh, kingpin of a drug dealer that had been involved in drugs for many years, which was certainly a, a lie. Uh, but I was the one with the name, you know, of all of my co-defendants. I was the one that was Sammy Smith. I was the NFL guy. I was the one that they was going to make the case on yep. and that it was going to be all in the newspaper. And I think I even had an article in Jet Magazine back then. So it was, it was. Uh, I tell you, it was pretty uh, humbling, um, 
And it was uh, something that, that really brought out humility in me to know that, uh, man, I, that, that could happen to me. It could happen to anyone. But I accepted my responsibility. I knew that I had made a, a horrible choice. And all I could do at that time was uh, ask for forgiveness, you know, and, and ask God to forgive me and my family to forgive me and uh, to just pray that uh, God would be lenient and I would be able to move on from that and then be able to make a difference. And I tell you, God, is, he's really done everything I've asked him. Well, when we come back, the rest of the story, this is the beautiful part of the story, and so many of our lives are informed this way. We have to dig ourselves or drive ourselves right into a ditch in order to find out what our lives are really all about, who our friends really are, and what life's all about. This is Lee Habib, Sammy Smith's story, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're talking to Sammy Smith. And last time we were with you, uh, you'd heard about Sammy talking about, well, being in being in jail and knowing that, well, he had made some bad decisions. Uh, the press, of course, had done what the press always does, and the press is, well, it's always been the same way, wanting to make money off people's pain and suffering, and they'll always be that way. Uh, but Sammy had to deal with real life and his family and seeking forgiveness. And so, Sammy, you, you find yourself with a whole new set of uh, roommates uh, <laughs> in prison and a lot of guys who'd made some bad mm-hmm. choices, but human beings. And we talk a lot about inmates on this show here in Our American Stories because there, there are folks in these prisons and they need our attention. There are our brothers, there are our sisters, and they're friends. And mm-hmm. we, we've all made mistakes there before the grace of God go all of us in these measures. Um, what did you learn about so many of the people you were living with now for for and how many years were you living with him there? Well, Sammy? I was at uh, I was in federal prison for right at six years. Um, I started my uh, sentence in uh, Coleman Correctional Facility, a federal facility there in Florida, uh, which was probably an hour from my home, uh, which was a good spot because you know I got to see family all the time and my daughter. Uh, but man, you know, my heart went out to some of the. Uh, men that were in that facility, uh, young men, uh, old men, uh, um, people that weren't going to have a second chance. You know, I had, I got 87 month sentence, which was a little over seven years, but there were guys in there with life sentences for the same, uh, uh, distressions that I had, but some of them had multiple, you know, distressions. They were career guys and that had been in trouble all their lives. And, um, but man, what great people. I got an opportunity to meet some of the most genuine people uh, inside than I ever met outside. And I had an opportunity to really just kind of do life with them for 
the time I was in there to be able to share my experiences and to be able to share, um, you know, my shortcomings and be able to share, you know, how I believe God was changing me at that time and what he was going to do when I got out. And I think one of the most blessed opportunities I've had, and I've had a chance to speak on many occasions, was being able to go back to that same uh, facility that I started a sentence in 18 years prior and go back in and speak to young men that were in there and and to let them know that there's hope and there's opportunities when you get out, uh, if you'll change your life and uh, decide to seek uh, God. And so much of of that life, there isn't hope. Mm -hmm. There's not enough contact with the outside world. And there's certainly, Sammy, and this is a tough word for men to use, but there's not enough love. Mm Mm-hmm. And so talk about that, and what what did you start to do? Were you, were you uh, of, of the knowledge then that you had a ministerial quality to you, that you could minister to other men? When did this, when did this come upon you, that you had either this gift, this talent, or this desire? Well, I know while I was there, I started seeking God, and I started asking, you know, you know how could I make a difference, God? What would you want me to do when— when this is all is open over and when the door is open for me to leave here. And uh, I knew that I had a story to tell. I knew that God was going to bless me tremendously. I knew that I would be able to put my life back together because God promised that, you know. And uh, so when I got out, I still was a little um, shaky. You know, I still was kind of concerned with what people thought and, you know, man, did they look at me as that's, that's Sammy Smith. He had it all and he threw it threw away. It away. And, yep. You know, and and so I still had those little reservations, you know, and then um, I got blessed, to be honest with you, man, to meet a wonderful woman when I got out and uh, we start dating and I start hearing some of her story and I start thinking to myself, man, how, how could I'm sitting here in self-pity with everything that uh, my future wife, who's my wife now, had, had gone through and uh, uh, I was getting opportunities to share and to speak and I would always choose the little things. You know, I was getting opportunities to speak at big events, but I was trying to find the little things just to speak to a few kids. And and uh, i never forget, it was probably not 2010, uh, the FCA director for Orlando area had found my number some kind of way, and he called me and asked me would I come and share at the Capital One Bowl uh, FCA breakfast. And it was Alabama and Michigan State playing in the game. And I remember hanging, you know, telling him before hanging up, hey, I'm going to have to check my schedule. I'm not sure I can – I'll be available to do that. And it was going to be a thousand people there at this event. Right. And I hung the phone up with him and immediately God spoke to me and said, how long are you going to hold in the testimony that I've given you? I'm giving you opportunity after opportunity to share. You promised me when you were in prison, you was going to share your testimony. And I call Wave Robinson is his name. I call him right back within less than five minutes. And I told him that I was clear and that I, I could do it. And I tell you that event, really changed my life. Just being able to go there and to share that, I, I, I saw that God had given me something through the experiences that I had gone through that could be positive and that could help other people out. And uh, I've been sharing ever since. You know, and that little thing, that little voice that stops you from sharing, of course, is pride. Mm-hmm. And we know that that pride tries to separate us from other people. Yes. And like it look like we're more important, we're better. And, and the second we let go of that pride, it's when we start to connect yes. with other human beings. We play uh, an hour on Chuck Colson every year. He's one of my personal heroes. Mm-hmm. And what happened to him in prison and how we learned that he'd been just living this wretched, prideful life. Yeah. And that once he was able to testify about his shortcomings, suddenly he had friends for the yes. first time. He had relationships for the first time. And his faith in, in, in God brought him so much closer, not just to, mm-hmm. to, to friends that he lost, 
but to friends he'd never knew he had. Yes. Uh, and it was beautiful. And they weren't his friends because he was Mr. Powerful Lawyer at the White House. Right. And they weren't your friends because you were Mr. Running Back at the Miami Dolphins. Mm-hmm. You were just Sammy. That's right. Sammy the guy. That's right. And uh, that's so hard. Tell us a little bit about your bride. Here's this woman who uh, I, I would only uh, venture to guess blew you away because here she is loving a guy who's just, as some people would see it, blown it all. And, well, you, you had a criminal record, and she's offering you the kind of love that you, you can only ask for in life, which is unconditional mm-hmm. love. No judgment, finding you at a point in your life that's mm-hmm. got to be as, you know, just coming out of prison, having lost everything, a really difficult place to be. And there she is with open arms. Uh, talk a bit about her. Well, um, I was on supervised release at the time. That's when, you know, I was at a halfway house, and you get a— opportunity to go home on the weekends. I think I had about five or six months of halfway house time. So I was in Tampa, Florida, and then I would get a furlough or whatever, a weekend pass to go home. And it just so happened one of those weekends I was home, uh, my wife now, Shalanda, uh, had come to our home. My dad, God bless his soul, he just passed this August, but he worked for a tile company. And whenever they had discontinued tile, he would get you know, crates of tile, and he had a big uh, storage shed in the back that we kept it in, and people got to know my dad as the tile man. And uh, she had just built a home and uh, had come over with uh, a couple of other friends of hers looking for Sammy Smith Sr., my dad, and they were looking at tile, and she was trying to find some tile for her house, and I saw her, and I was like, wow, you know. And I ended up asking one of my cousins about her that, that knew the other two people that she was with, and and he knew her, and he told me, you know, she's a, a wonderful young lady. Um, she's got a son. Um, she's single, but she's got a great heart. She's a Christian, and I wanted to meet her. And so we arranged to be able to meet, and uh, she gave me a little hard time there for a little while. She was kind of ducking me, but uh, I was persistent. And then we started dating, and uh, life has been just amazing ever since. Uh, we've been married now for 13, 13 years. And we dated for probably three or four years prior. So for all the families that have somebody in, in, in the system, uh, or, or they know a kid who's about to go into that system, we know the kids. You know, the teachers know. They know the kids who mm-hmm. are going to probably end up in jail. A lot of them are fatherless. Some of them have fathers, mm-hmm. but a lot of them are fatherless. And then others, well, they have some friends that are questionable and might lead mm-hmm. them to these places. And so um, we, we, we personally in our family have a, a nephew who's in, 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 in prison mm-hmm. here in the state of Mississippi. And we, we visit him and we pray for him and he's made some bad choices and he's trying to straighten up his life. But without that communication from the outside world, he'd have no choice and no chance, mm-hmm. I don't think. Um, talk to, to the family members who are going through this because it's tough. I mean, the, the family has to deal with all the outside world, their opinions, their chattering, their gossiping. Uh, some advice to family members who have family in prison and also to total strangers Mm -hmm. um, who live near a prison and might be able to just go and visit some of these men and women locked up. Some advice to people listening. At at the end of the day, you know, the word of God tells us to love our neighbors. And, uh, um, you know, these young men and these young women that are in situations that have gotten them into prison, uh, they need love. Uh, They don't need their families to turn their backs on them. They, They don't need their friends uh, to turn their backs on them, they need those uh, people that are that are out in the world and, uh, and that are um, living life to to continue to pray for them, uh, to continue to support them, to to continue to encourage them, and to just be there for them. You know, you know, God works in mysterious ways. Uh, 
I think, you know, in, in retrospect, I would never choose to want to have to go through what I went through, but I would not choose it if it got me to where I'm at today. So in other words, I'm thankful for uh, the opportunity I had to get in trouble and go to prison because it made me the man that I am today. And uh, that's what I pray for, for people that are in prison, that, that whatever uh, God has in store for them that needs to be worked out and that's the route that he sent them, that his work will be done and that they'll, they'll come out whole and uh, be able to have productive lives. But they certainly need the support of uh, their family and their friends. Well, on those notes, Sammy, thank you for sharing the story. Sammy Smith's story, and by the way, his bride's story, and his family's story, a redemptive story, a story of love, and a great Christian story here on Our American Stories. (laughs) 